anytime I ate, it was extremely painful. I would feel sick. I'd throw up. I'd have diarrhea. To describe it, taking a ball of razor blades, heating it up white hot, and swallowing it. So I was really sick very quickly. Like, I didn't know what Crohn's disease was. I hadn't heard of it. It's not commonly spoken of. So from there, it was like, basically, you are so sick, you need to be in the hospital. Like, this is, this is scary. You're dehydrated. You have a lot of blood loss. My digestion was so compromised, I basically, my body was eating itself because that's the only way I was getting nutrients. I was absorbing my own muscle mass to survive. So I watched myself get thinner and thinner and sicker and sicker and eventually decided that you can have surgery or you stay on the course you're on and eventually it'll kill you. Welcome to episode six of Interesting Vancouver Presents. Interesting Vancouver Presents is a series of conversations with ordinary Vancouverites leading extraordinary lives. I'm your host, David Swanson, and today, Interesting Vancouver Presents, Rob Hill. Rob was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when he was 23. If you don't know, Crohn's is a type of inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD for short, that can affect any part of a person's gastrointestinal tract. We don't know exactly what causes Crohn's, but it's believed to be a combination of genetic and environmental factors. What we do know is that the disease causes a person's immune system to attack their gastrointestinal tract. This can lead to things like abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, bowel cancer, and severe weight loss. In the months right after his diagnosis, Rob lost 80 pounds. He was sick, really sick, and something needed to be done. They did a colectomy, so they removed my full large intestine. Um, which left me with what's called an ileostomy. So what they do is basically they cut a hole in your abdomen and they take the intestine and they kind of roll it out on itself and stitch it to your abdominal wall. So it's like a little rosebud that comes out the skin on your abdomen. Uh, the ostomy pouch itself collects the stool um, or fecal matter or urine, depending on what type of ostomy you have that comes out of you. Rob's ostomy bag sits on the outside of his body, just below his belly button, on the right side of his abdomen. It seems like it would be an invasive appendage, but Rob told me it's pretty easy to empty, and I was surprised to learn it's had very little impact on his diet, and it doesn't interfere with his ability to travel or play sports, and the pouch is relatively small, so it doesn't really affect what he can wear either. But the stigma surrounding intestinal disorders means that it's common for people who undergo the procedure to have fear and anxiety about living with an ostomy. So it's pretty easy to understand how it could negatively alter someone's body image. Physically, humans are wonderful creatures. I came back really quick. My physical health came back, my muscle strength. But I didn't address the, the mental side of what I'd gone through. I didn't address the fact that I had something on the outside of my body that made me different from everybody else a bag on the outside of your body that, you know, that was strange, right? And I worried about how people would, would take to me. The mental side, really, that took eight years. It took eight years to overcome where I dealt with bouts of depression. Rob was a really active person before his diagnosis. He grew up playing soccer, mountain biking, running triathlons, and he even ran his first marathon when he was just seven years old. When he got sick, 
He couldn't do any of these things. And on top of that, he had difficulty adjusting to his new life with an ostomy bag. Over time, though, Rob slowly learned to accept his condition. And in 2001, he decided to do something to raise awareness for intestinal disease and living with an ostomy. He decided to do something that only 250 people have ever done, and no person living with Crohn's or an ostomy has ever done. Rob decided to climb the highest peak on each of the seven continents. You've done something called the Seven Summits Challenge. So what is that? So the Seven Summits is the highest peak on each of the seven continents. The campaign came around sort of when I got to better understanding what I was living with and the acceptance. And then I thought, what can I do to sort of help other people? Now I'm a BC boy. I grew up with heroes like Terry Fox and Rick Hansen and thought maybe something along those lines, right? So I just, you know, like, oh, maybe it's mountain climbing, right? And, uh, you know, I'm a climber and I love being in that environment. I just think, I just kind of said, well, you know what? There has to be a voice. Why not me? So in Alaska, highest mountain in North America, Denali. Standing 6,190 meters tall. Uh, in South America, on the Chilean-Argentinian border, uh, Aconcagua. 6,961 meters and we'll go down south to Antarctica. It's called Vincent Massif. 4,892 meters. And then let's go to Europe, uh, Elborus. It's uh, in Russia. It's close to the Georgian border. Elborus is 5,642 meters. And then into Kilimanjaro in Africa, which is in Tanzania. 5,895 meters. And then um, Australasia. And tallest mountain on that is a Karstens Pyramid. It's, it's in northern Indonesia, and it's 4,884 meters tall. And then Mount Everest, the highest uh, mountain in the world on the Nepalese-Tibetan border. And how tall is Everest? That's real tall. It's uh, 8,865 meters. And it grows every year, so that's why I'm not getting it right. <laughs> Rob began his Seven Summits Challenge in 2002 with Mount Elborus. It was a difficult first summit with icy slopes, blinding snowstorms, and powerful headwinds. But Rob pushed through this terrible weather, exhausted, and was able to bag the peak. The following year, Rob was ready to climb his second summit. Aconcagua sits on the border of Chile and Argentina in the Andes mountain range. So Rob and his team are on the mountain. They're on Aconcagua. There are a few camps on the mountain, and climbers are slowly advancing from one to another as they ascend. Rob and his team had been on Aconcagua for a few weeks, and they were moving up to what is called High Camp, which is the camp just below the peak. And that morning, something went wrong. I had started urinating blood. So we're on the satellite phone. We're calling doctors in, the, in Canada and trying to figure out, is it kidney infection? Is it something that we could just do? Could it be related to the Crohn's? But it's just determined we're going to get you out. We're going to fly you out of here. As he's airlifted off the mountain, Rob's feeling really disappointed, and he's doubting whether he's physically able to complete the seven summits, if his Crohn's is just too big an obstacle to overcome. He reaches a hospital in a small town called Luspanada, which is in the middle of nowhere in Argentina. So I'm in this hospital that's basically like a three-hallway hospital with probably six, seven rooms in total, just dirt roads in this town. I had to give the nurse money so she'd go down to the pharmacy and buy me the drugs I needed to deal with my kidney infection. And I was there by myself. And this young man comes in and starts sharing the room with me like this local local guy. And um, he's a teenager. And uh, I start to watch him. And he goes back and forth to the bathroom. 
So I'm like, well, that looks really familiar. And uh, it turns out he had ulcerative colitis, which is similar to Crohn's disease. So we start talking about different treatment, like what does he go through and what it's like in Canada and that I had surgery. And he basically, every couple months, he's in the hospital for about a week at a time and they just get it calm. And uh, like that was really where I realized that it wasn't about it wasn't about me, it wasn't about the mountain, it was about this moment that helped me realize that this campaign was bigger than these mountains. It was about being able to reach out to people who were dealing with you know, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease to say. It's just about somewhat finding each other and finding that hand to help you up when you need it. So it was, that was just an amazing experience. It's a common bond that people living with the same illness share that sort of transcends language and no one knows that suffering unless you've been through it right so rob recovered quite quickly from his kidney infection later that year he climbed mount kilimanjaro and in 2004 he flew back to argentina and summited aconcagua over the next four years rob would summit denali vincent massif and karstan's pyramid he was nearly finished and in 2008 with six of the seven summits complete there was only one left Everest is significantly taller than any of the other seven summit mountains. At 8,848 meters, it's nearly 2,000 meters higher than Aconcagua, which is the second highest of the seven. The climate on Everest is extremely unforgiving. The temperature never even comes close to going above freezing, with average temperatures in the summer of negative 19 degrees Celsius, and in the winter, negative 36. And with wind chill, the temperature can drop to 60 below. But before you can get to the peak, you have to get to base camp. All the gear and supplies is brought to the base of the mountain by a team of porters. Each porter carries about 65 pounds of supplies, and it takes five to seven days for each of them to hike everything into base camp. It's interesting walking into Everest. Basically, you fly in, you trek for two days, and then to actually get your first glimpse of Everest, you got to do a day trip to fi finally see it, right? It was really windy on the summit that day, so you could see the, the moisture blowing across it, and it was all white, so it looks like wisps, but it's like it's howling up there, right? It's in the jet stream, so it's just ripping. There's nothing like the Himalayas, just for how grand it is. It's... I don't think you quite believe at that moment that you're, you know, my goal is to get to the top of that. The death rate on Everest has been remarkably stable over decades. It's one in 40. This is, is Dr. Peter Hackett of the Himalayan Rock Climbing Association. He was featured in a documentary called 40 Days at Base Camp that was directed and filmed by Diane Whelan. Diane Whelan is a Vancouver filmmaker who actually went to the Everest Base Camp to capture the stories of different people trying to climb the mountain, including Rob. That's still higher than most people would want except for a holiday. I felt great into base camp, just really enjoying getting there and seeing the mountain for the first time. And uh, we are about a day in uh, base camp and I started having abdominal pain. I lost my appetite. I didn't want to eat. Um, thought, oh, maybe it's just altitude. I'm going to go low. As I was leaving base camp, 
our team doctor was coming up the other way, and I, I kind of said, Clark, uh, I'm having some issues. Um, he's like, okay, well, let's check you out. So um, pulls up my shirt, is, you know, feeling my abdomen. There's some kind of stricture or something's going on with my intestine. Um, we'd find out later that it actually had twisted and it was blocking everything. So Rob's body isn't absorbing nutrients from his food, and the twist is preventing him from going to the bathroom. His doctor set him up with steroids and painkillers to try and calm things down. But after a couple days, they realized his body wasn't healing, and he had to be flown off the mountain. Everest is still a physiologic and medical problem more than it is a climbing problem. Climbers have to climb 11,500 feet. That's all, from the base camp to the summit. But what makes it so unique is that the climber is putting him or herself in a low oxygen environment that produces a lot of stress that normally don't experience at lower altitudes. And so acclimatization becomes crucially important. Staying healthy becomes crucially important. And uh, genetics becomes important. Not everybody has the genes that allows them to function at high altitude. Rob had this exact thought on his way home. Will my disease make it physically impossible for me to climb this mountain? Is Everest just too tall? It brought back memories of his Crohn's diagnosis when he was 23, feeling weak and helpless and unsure of his future. But a quick recovery helped renew Rob's motivation and dispel any lingering doubt about a second attempt at Everest. Two years later, after intense training and a few adjustments to his diet, Rob was ready. His team consisted of six other men. So there's John Furneaux and Daryl, who are fellow climbing partners, John O'Shaughnessy, who is their radio communications guy stationed at base camp, and three Tibetan Sherpas who guide them on their trek up the mountain. These are Mingma, Dawa, and Tandorje. Rob and his team spent about two months at base camp through March and April acclimatizing to the low oxygen conditions until they decided it was time to start their push up Everest in May, moving from base camp to Camp 1, the first of four camps on the path to the summit. This is a clip from Rob's video diary that he recorded for 40 days at base camp. He recorded it shortly after leaving base camp when he reached Camp 1. Um, just chilling at Camp 1. I decided to stay. A few reasons. Uh, just a little bit mental. Um, been around the guys for a long time. Kind of felt it wouldn't hurt just to chill out by myself. And Plus, I kind of like Camp 1. Uh, it's comfortable. And it's a really short jaunt up to Camp 2. And I didn't really want to do it in the heat of the day. So Rob rests for a bit and heads up to Camp 2 to meet John Furneaux and Daryl. When he catches up to them, they tell Rob that they're actually not feeling that well and that they've decided to spend another night at Camp 2 while he pushes on to Camp 3. So as I move up... Um, starting this to get is Rob speaking phase, at the 2015 Interesting Vancouver event. It starts to weigh on me. This is the second time I've been into Everest. Uh, the first time I had a stricture in my bowel and had to be flown off the mountain. And you start to think, is that going to happen again? Mountains are incredibly beautiful places, but incredibly dangerous, and anything can happen in the blink of an eye. And self-doubt comes hand in hand, but you don't want that when you're trying to move fast on a big, big mountain. So Rob spends one night at Camp 3, and the next morning at 6 a.m., he's moving up to Camp 4, which is in... What's called the death zone, and it's very aptly named. Um, you don't want to spend a lot of time there. You are dying fairly quickly. Because of the, there's about a third of the oxygen there as there is at sea level. Because there is so little oxygen at Camp 4, 
most climbers wear an oxygen mask to help them breathe. Shortly after getting to Camp 4, Rob's Sherpa guide Tandorje notices that they don't have enough oxygen bottles for their entire team. Another climber from a different team actually stole six of their canisters. Luckily, they're able to find a team coming off the summit who has some extra bottles, but all the stress of dealing with this situation means that they haven't slept or eaten properly, which is even more physically detrimental for somebody with Crohn's. Rob's fellow climbers believe that it's actually about twice as hard for his body to absorb nutrients in an environment like Everest. And on top of all this, the weather went sideways. This is John O'Shaughnessy, Rob's communication radio operator on Everest, speaking in the documentary 40 Days of Base Camp. of that cyclone that was supposed to miss us actually is overhead right now. The guys were in all in Camp 4 yesterday. Long story short, they've managed to to get enough food and fuel to, to stay up there another 24 hours. If this weather doesn't clear up uh, for them tonight, then our, we're done. Camp 4 sits 8,000 meters on a plateau I've heard described as a moonscape. It's at the edge of the atmosphere, and the peak feels closer to outer space than it does to Earth. If you stay at that altitude for too long, you risk getting something called high-altitude cerebral edema. This is when your brain swells with fluid, and if you don't descend to a lower altitude very quickly, it'll lead to confusion, fever, hallucinations, loss of consciousness, and eventually death. Over 250 bodies remain trapped on the mountain above the 8,000-meter mark. Lots of these bodies are buried in the snow, but many are exposed, contorted, mummified corpses in plain sight for all climbers to see. At this point in their climb, Rob and Tandorje have been in the death zone for far too long. They're on their third night above 8,000 meters. So Rob and his team suit up and leave on a 20-hour climb to the top of the highest mountain in the world. and we start moving. Now, because there was so much snow the day before, it's Ted Dorje in the front, me right behind him, and we're post-hoeing. We're basically, every step, we're up to our waist in snow, which is exhausting at sea level. We are sucking wind big time, and would be regardless. If, I remember thinking at the time, if somebody said, let's turn around, I would have said yes. <laughs> like, and it put everything into that moment. Like, this has been a dream. This has been a dream of mine for so long. You're there, you're so close. You know, you feel like you can touch it. We're here in the South Summit. Rob should be coming up any minute. There was that initial fear and, and, you know, is this possible? Can I sustain this? Because I got to live in that environment, right? And you're not living in that environment. You're just slowly dying. And it's like, can I slowly die in that environment and still complete what I want to complete? You know, it was pretty apparent getting into the South Summit that Rob had slowed right down and, and that he was pretty hammered. And, you know, he just said... You know, I've, I've been through a lot up here, and 
I'm okay with this. I know on some level he's going to be disappointed, but I think it's going to be short-lived. And I'm fucking proud. These are not, uh, I'm not feeling a, a disappointment. I'm feeling just, just a sense of awe and amazement that there's been a lot lesser people that have gone up that mountain and made stupid decisions. This guy did it right. You know, so much of just that moment that day, I relived the journey just in my health and getting my health back and worrying about living with an ostomy. Like, it was kind of condensed into the walk to the highest mountain in the world, which is bizarre, but... You relive that. As I was moving forward to this grand point, I still would slide back. You know, I just need a minute to, you know, to sort of say, wow, like that's eight years of climbing mountains all around the world, looking to finish the seven summits, and it's done. Not just that moment of, like, awesome, I did it, but what now? Even though we witness everything, we're not enjoying it. I think that's one thing that the disease did for me. It really removed my blinders. Like I said, I just didn't go through life as, oh, I have to get up, do my job. I think that's why I really honed into climbing. I, I love climbing. This has been Interesting Vancouver Presents Rob Hill. This episode was hosted and produced by me, David Swanson, with support from Brett McFarlane and Mark Bussey, in association with SFU Woodwards, Graphic Designers of Canada, and Creative Mornings Vancouver. Special thanks to Diane Whelan for allowing us to use audio from her film 40 Days at Base Camp. Through talks, workshops, and programs, Interesting Vancouver celebrates the people and activities that can only happen in Vancouver and by Vancouverites. For more information, to subscribe, or to get in touch, visit us at interestingvancouver.com. I'm David Swanson. Thanks for listening.